Well, good morning, faith family. It's good to see you. I want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. If you have a Bible, would you please make your way to the book of Ruth one last time? This morning, we conclude our series uh, on Ruth. God's people said, aw, right? Don't say amen. Um, We've been in a series the last several weeks uh, just with the intent of encouraging you and edifying you in Jesus. Uh, There's so much going on in our lives and in our world We just felt like that we needed a a message that says, you know what, no matter what's going on, nothing has to take your hope away. If you've got hope in Jesus Christ, you have an eternal hope, and that that hope can be the foundation and the very anchor of your life. And I hope that you've been encouraged through the book of Ruth. I would tell you that I thought I knew a lot about the book of Ruth, but I have learned so much. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to kind of bring it to a close. We've already worked through all the chapters and verses, and what this morning is intended to do is just be kind of a summary. It's not about learning new information. It's about what have we already learned, and are we going to live that? Are we going to apply that? Are we really going to be a people with hope? That's what I want us to think about Uh, this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, Ruth chapter 1, please stand for the honor of reading God's Word. Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to listen now as we begin in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the joy it is to be here this morning. Thank you for what you've been teaching us through the book of Ruth. And uh, may may your spirit lead us this time uh, as we look again to this great story. May we learn, may we be encouraged, may we truly apply what you would have us apply uh, as a result of this book. So Spirit, come and do what only you can do. I am, I am desperate for you uh, to, to teach now. So come and be our guide. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Her name was Scheherazade. She's actually one of the main characters of an old folk tale, uh, A Thousand and One Nights. You may have heard it called uh, Arabian Nights. And the story goes like this. There's a Persian king 
who discovers that his wife has been unfaithful. His response to that is to have her executed. But what he discovers is upon his wife's death, his his sense of rage, his sense of anger, his sense of revenge isn't satisfied, it only intensifies. And so he has a plan. He will rid his entire kingdom of all women. And his plan is this. I'll marry a different one every night, enjoy her for the evening, and have her killed in the morning. And so he does this day after day, day after day, until he meets Scheherazade. She's she's the daughter of one of the, the king's court officials. And Scheherazade agrees to marry the king, but she has a plan as well. Upon the marriage that evening, they go into the king's chambers, and Scheherazade offers to tell the king a story. The king says yes, but what he doesn't realize is the story ends up being so captivating, so engaging, that he listens all night long and into the morning. In the morning, Scheherazade refuses to tell the king how the story ends. And the king, just like you would be, has to know the ending of the story, and so he lets her live another day. And the next night, she finishes the story, which just so happens to lead to another story even more captivating than the one before. And once again, she doesn't tell him how it ends. And so he lets her live another day. And this goes on and on and on, day after day, story after story, for 1,001 nights. And by the end of that time, the king is so in love with Scheherazade, he decides to spare her life. Now, I wonder what your reaction is to that story. Your reaction might be, what an idiot. Like, how in the world would you fall for that kind of scheme? Let's be honest. You and I would never fall for something like that. Unless, of course, the story was called The Walking Dead. (laughs) Or maybe Downton Abbey. Maybe old episodes of Friends. Maybe episode after episode of Lost. Maybe Pastor Ben's favorite TV drama, Dora. (laughs) Whatever your genre, right? All of us have probably said or heard someone say, just one more episode and then I'll go to bed. Just one more episode and then I'll turn the television off. Just one more. You see, my dear friend, you're not that much different than the king. And neither am I. Namely, we love a good story. We've experienced the power of story. It's it's why we go to movies. It's why we read novels. It's why you tell stories around a campfire. It's why you read stories to your children or grandchildren at bedtime. We've all been captivated by story. But story not only captivates us, it has a way of confronting us that other genre cannot do. It has a way of bringing us into the story and forcing us to see our lives in a whole new way. The Bible does this all the time, doesn't it? Let me give you just a few examples. I could tell you 
love your neighbor. Like I could just say, love your neighbor. Or I could say, I could tell you about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and how his enemy restored him. I could, t- I could just flat out tell you, you know what? God is a God who forgives. Or I could tell you a story about a father who had two sons and how one squandered everything and yet the father received him home. I could tell you that you're supposed to serve your enemies and you're supposed to serve the people who are not like you. I could just say that. Or I could tell you a story about a prophet who hated Ninevites so much that he ran from God. Don't you see? Story not only captivates us, it confronts us. It brings us in and makes us look at our lives. Right here, faith family, that's exactly what Ruth is intended to do. Is it captivating? Absolutely. It's got all kinds of twists and turns and and bohunk and polony and threshing floors and all that. It is a very captivating story, but we would fail to understand Ruth if we left the book without seeing its intent to confront us, to put us in the story and ask us not about the events of their life, but how you're living yours. And so I want to ask you, face to face this morning, are you a person of hope? Are you? Do you have hope in God? And what this story does, there's probably like 15, but I'm going to give you four. Four ways this story confronts us in terms of how we must live if we're going to be a people that hope in God. Number one. If we're going to be a people of hope, this story confronts us to say, you're going to have to trust God even when you can't see Him. You with me? Do you want to be a person of hope? Then you're going to have to. You're going to have to trust God when you can't see God. Verse 11 of chapter 1. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I had tried the last several weeks to explain over and over again that this is the worst case scenario for a woman in the ancient Near East. This is rock bottom. It is as dark as dark gets. I want to ask you, what is your worst case scenario? What is rock bottom? What would that look like for you? Whatever that might look like for you, this is exactly how it looks like in the ancient Near East for Naomi. She's lost everything. She's lost her homeland as her husband has taken the family to Moab. Her sons marry Moabite women. She loses her husband. He dies. Her two sons die. Her daughters-in-law have been barren. There are no grandchildren. 
and she's left with nothing, nothing. No future, no lineage, no hope. It is worst case scenario to the point that Naomi believes that God's hand is against her. Have you ever felt like that? Like God has just totally checked out on you. That God looked at you and just said, see ya. Now, how does the story end for Naomi? We looked at it last week. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 4. She now has this grandson on her lap, Obed, and listen to what is said of her in chapter 4, verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi's life ends up being restored and repaired after she lost everything in chapter one. But here's the point I'm trying to make to us this morning. In the middle, she couldn't see the hand of God. She had no idea how this story was going to unfold. She didn't know the glorious ending we sang about this morning. She couldn't see God. And Naomi's not alone. Listen to what some of the other experiences in the Bible were. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Like, I'm so sick of crying out and I don't ever get an answer. Or I cry to you, violence, and you will not save. I look at all that's going on in my situation, in my context, and you don't do a thing. Man, it just feels like you've checked out. Psalm 22, verse 1. We know this psalm of David because Jesus quotes it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Here's the reality I want us to see. It's meant to encourage you. I don't know if it will. It's simply this. The reality of the Christian life is you will go through seasons where you can't see God. And you will feel alone. And you will feel forsaken. But yet, what do we need to know in those moments so that we do not give up hope? We need to know, first of all, I know you know this, but I need to affirm and challenge you on this this morning. Your ways are not His ways. And my ways are not God's ways. Is that not what the Bible teaches us over and over again? Isaiah 55, verse 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us that we may do all the works of the law. God doesn't work the way we want God to work. If you asked Naomi to sit down and write her story, it would not have included chapter 1. It certainly would not be the journey she would wanted for herself, but it was the journey that God had 
for her. I jotted down five ways we tend to want God to work, and it's not how God always works, but number one, we want God to work fast. God, you can do it whenever you want to do it, as long as it's now. It doesn't matter what the timeline is, as long as you do it right this moment. Number two, we want him to do it according to our plan. Not only can you do it whenever you want to do it, as long as it's now, you can do it however you want to do it, as long as it's my way. And yet, what does the Lord's Prayer remind us? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Number three is we tend to want God to work on demand like he's some DVR. Whenever I ask, anytime I ask, I want you to work. Number four, make it obvious. Make it plain. Give me the answers. Don't be fuzzy. Number five is in it when you do it, could you do it without pain? Could it be as easy as possible, as painless as possible? We want it fast. We want it according to our plan. We want it on demand. We want it to be obvious, and we want it to be painless. But God's ways are not our ways. It's why, friends, we walk, the Bible says, by faith and not by sight. we got to learn this. Jesus said, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe because they do not see. I remind you of those in Hebrews 11, just very quickly. I just want you to listen to this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events not yet seen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. Abraham, by faith, obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Sarah, by faith, received power to conceive even when she was past age. I don't see any way that this is possible. And yet she considered him faithful who promised. Last one, Moses, by faith, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Right here, faith family, you and I have got to break the addiction that we have to see God to know that God is at work. We have to get over this addiction to sight. This isn't a life of seeing. It's a life of faith. And there are going to be times in the middle of chapter 1 and chapter 4 where we don't have any idea what God is up to, and we're going to have to trust when we don't see Naomi was absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that God was against her right here, and she was absolutely wrong. Do you want to be a person of hope? Then we're going to have to trust even when we don't see. Here's the second thing that the story of Ruth confronts us with if we're going to be a people of hope. And I this was so encouraging to me, particularly one of the reasons why I love the book of Ruth, is that we've got to know, we've got to know, be absolutely assured, blessed assurance that God is doing extraordinary things in our ordinary lives. 
God is doing extraordinary things in our ordinary lives. Let me show you where I get that in the text. Look at how chapter 2 starts, which is the hinge coming out of chapter 1 of how the story will unfold. Now, Naomi, verse 1, had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. His name was Bohunk. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, that's what I call him, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then do you remember several weeks ago when we unpacked this phrase? And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. That phrase, she just so happened to come to Boaz's field, who just so happened to be of the clan of Elimelech. In the Hebrew, it is as chance chanced it. Now, let me put this in context so you understand the point that I'm trying to make. In chapter 1, we see the loss of sons. By the end of the story, we see the birth of a son. In chapter 1, we see 10 years of barrenness. By the end of the story, we see 10 generations. At the beginning of the story, we see a Moabite who's outside the people of God. By the end of the story, we see somebody who's been redeemed into the people of God. My point is, there's an extraordinary end, a glorious unfolding, a happily ever after right here. But how do we get there? How do we get from chapter 1 to chapter 4? I know, I know, I know. Manna falls out of heaven and they're fed. No. Ruth gets up one day and goes gleaning in a field. I know, do you remember that moment when an angel miraculously appeared out of nowhere? It was awesome, except it wasn't in there. What was in there is Boaz got up and went to work one day. Oh, no, 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 what it was, it was a miraculous conception where the Holy Spirit conceived like with Mary in Matthew chapter 1. It, it was that kind of, a, actually what it was was two people falling in love and starting a family. You see, what I love about Ruth is it's the sovereignty of God and the ordinary of life. It's not burning bushes, it's barley fields. It's struggling in a hard economy. It's dealing with dysfunctional family relationships. Don't point. <laughs> it's weddings and funerals. It's being a widow. It's an immigrant trying to discover life in a new world. It's God in the ordinary. It's God doing the extraordinary just so happens in the ordinary she ends up in Boaz's field. I, I want you to understand my, my heart here. I, I hope I communicate this with the intent that I mean it. I remember when I was in high school, I was invited by one of my friends to go to a youth service at his church. The speaker that particular night at this youth event was, was really pushing the supernatural, and I'm all for the supernatural. There is no denying the supernatural. Amen. But what he said is he said, what I want you to do is um, for 45 minutes, I want everybody to get alone. 
I want you to go around the church or you can go outside, but I want you to spread out and get along. And what I want you to do is I want you to pray sincerely for 45 minutes that God would do something miraculous and supernatural in your life at that moment. And so I did. And I prayed really genuinely. And I like, squinted my eyes and every, and I really, really meant it. I mean, no, I really, really meant it. I I was wanting that to happen. 45 minutes passed and everybody came back together and the youth started sharing. And one began to share how God had spoke to them in an audible voice. And one began to say how uh, this particular miraculous thing had happened to them during that 45 minutes. And I didn't say a word. And do you know why I didn't say a word? Because nothing happened. Nothing happened. In fact, I'll even advance it a little further and say, I didn't hear God's audible voice then, and I never have. I've never seen the suspension of a law of nature. I've never had one of those bright light, wake up in the night, dreams, miraculous visions. I've never had that. Do do I believe that God can do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I believe that God does that? Sure. Do I believe that some of you here today have had that happen? I wouldn't argue with you for a minute. But do I think my experience with God has been any lessened whatsoever because I haven't? Not one moment. Because God's primary way of doing extraordinary things is through ordinary life. Yes, there are burning bush moments, but there are barley fields where the hand of God is at work doing extraordinary things, I don't know, like bringing His Son into the world. Which, by the way, is a pretty extraordinary event that happened in an ordinary manger. It's God. We've got to reclaim the extraordinary work of God in the ordinary of life or you will lose your hope. It's the extraordinary hand of God as you're loving a neighbor, as you're caring for an aging parent, as you're serving a difficult spouse, as you're raising children, as you're going to work on Monday morning, knowing that God's sovereign hand is right there in the middle of it. And that is how we are a people of hope. Because we see, as the book of Ruth confronts us with, an extraordinary God and the ordinary things of life. We got to trust Him when we don't see Him. We got to know that He is. Listen, He is doing extraordinary things, even though you feel so blah. He is at work. And number three, third lesson this story confronts us with is we must live courageously, even in uncertainty. Live courageously even in uncertainty. I want to show you very quickly three episodes in Ruth's life and how she responds. Here's the first one. Look back at chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. This is when Naomi is saying, Ruth, go home. I know I'm serious. Get out of here. Go back to Moab. Verse 16, but Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Right here. What is Ruth's response to the pleading of Naomi to go back 
to Moab. First of all, why is Naomi even pleading for her to go back to Moab? Because a Moabite girl in Bethlehem has no hope. You're a widow now, a widow you will stay. You go with me, I got no future. Like, Why in the world would that be your life plan? Go home. What is Ruth's response? No, where you go, I go. Your God's my God. You say Bethlehem is uncertain. You say that that, that might be a, a little tricky for me, but I'm in. I'm going. I'm going to Bethlehem. And the text says she's so consistent and persistent that Naomi finally gives up the argument and says, okay, you win. Let's go. Number two. Look in chapter 2 in the second scenario that Ruth is in. Now they're back home and they don't have any food. They can't eat. They don't have anything to eat. Verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come in part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now look at verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Here's the scenario right here. The scenario is they're back in Bethlehem. They don't have anything to eat. And it is very dangerous. Very dangerous for a Moabite woman to go out into the fields to glean. Do you know how I know it's dangerous? Because if you keep reading in chapter 2, what does Boaz do when he shows up? One of the things that he does is he gathers all the young men around and says, if you touch her, they won't find your body. I will destroy you right? Don't touch her. Nobody touches her hands off. Why is he doing that? Because she's in great danger. But Ruth did not let the uncertainty of the barley field keep her from moving forward. Are you noticing a pattern in her life? Let me give you one more that will seal the deal. Look at chapter 3. Naomi has given her that risky, do you remember the threshing floor plan? We're not going back through that because one time is enough. I'm surprised I'm still employed after that sermon. So we're not going back through that again. But if you remember it, notice Ruth's response to it. Verse 5 of chapter 3. And she replied, all that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. What's the situation? I want you to put on Moabite madness. I want you to look good. We're going to go down to the threshing floor at night with all the people around, all the guys that have been out in the field. This is unbelievably dangerous. Boaz even knows that. But what is Ruth's response? I will do as I've been commanded. Are you noticing the pattern right here, right here, right here? Ruth's life in the face of uncertainty was always moving forward. Which is the exact opposite of like everybody else in the book. Elimelech goes to Moab. Naomi says, quit, give up hope. Orpah says, forget Bethlehem, I'm going back to the gods of Moab. Here's the point, dear friend. When everybody else is giving up, Ruth keeps getting up. 
When everybody else has quit, she keeps going because that's what people of hope do. They keep pressing on even when they don't know what the future holds. And the reason why they do that is because you never know. Lend your ear. You never know when you're one conversation away, one day away, one transaction away to seeing your story change forever. I have received a lot of encouraging emails through this series, but one of the, probably the most encouraging, one of them I received this week. It was from a couple who just recently moved to Minnesota from Nevada. They've been together five years and experienced a lot of adversity. It was a long email, but a good long email that began to explain a lot of the relational damage that they had experienced. How upon their move here, they had money, a significant amount of money stolen. How their car had been vandalized and broken into since moving and how just a few weeks ago they had a miscarriage. And she writes me and she said, I was at my end. It's too much. I'm in a foreign place. I'm in all kinds of adversity. Like, I just want to give up. And we go to a store. We just wanted to buy a rocking chair. And I lost it. I just broke down weeping in the middle of the store. Someone noticed and came over and started to talk to me and in the conversation said, do you need a church? And she said, uh, wouldn't hurt. <laughs> and they said, well, let me tell you about Berean. And you'll never guess what series... She just so happened to show up for. She showed up for the first time in church in a long time a few weeks ago. And here's her story. Quote, I came alone that first week and felt uncomfortable because church was new to me. But I felt I had nowhere else to turn. Because I needed help. And then as soon as you started explaining Ruth, I started shaking. My being uncomfortable at church soon disappeared as, because I felt like you were talking about me. I couldn't stop crying and trying to secretly wipe the tears from my face. The next four services my boyfriend attended with me, and we are now in the process of counseling. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. I can't wait every week to come to church. Pastor, I know there is still work to be done, but now I know I'm not alone, and God is by my side. I have gone from feeling alone to feeling like the strong hand of God is holding my hand. God brought me to church that day, and I was so close to giving up. Thank you, Pastor, with all my heart. I now have a whole new look 
on life. You never know when you're one day, one conversation, one moment away from God turning your story around. One minute you're buying a rocking chair, the next minute you're at church having your hope restored. You don't know what God is doing. You may not know the future, but God holds the future. There is nothing for you in Moab. There is nothing for you on the spiritual couch. Get up, don't quit, and move forward. That's what people of hope do. Trusting that at any moment, God may turn the story of your life around. We are in a world of people giving up. May the people of God keep getting up. Amen? Because we have hope. We've got to trust Him when we can't see Him. We have got to know that He's doing extraordinary things in our ordinary life. We've got to keep moving forward even when life is uncertain. And lastly, and this maybe most importantly we end with this, is that we have got to, oh my goodness, if we're going to be a people of hope, we've got to rest. Rest in the love of our Redeemer. In fact, if you were to ask me to summarize this whole book in one sentence, I would say, that's very difficult for me to do. And then I would say, here's the summary in one sentence. And I pray you're listening. There is no hope without redemption. In chapter 3, Ruth comes to Boaz on the threshing floor and she says, put your garment over me, spread your wing over me, redeem me, be my man. And Boaz says, I will. The problem is there's a closer redeemer. I'll deal with him and if I can, I will redeem you. Chapter 4, Boaz faces off with Poloni Almoni. He wins the day and look what happens in verse 9. Of chapter 4. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought the land from Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilon and Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Here's my point you can rip every chapter out of this story if there is no chapter 4. If there is no act or application of redemption, there is no hope for Ruth. And what were the qualifications again of Boaz to be a redeemer? He had to have the right to redeem. He had to be a kinsman. He had to have the resources to redeem. That is, he's got the possessions to be able to purchase her. He's got to have the resolve to redeem. That is, he's willing to go the distance. And what does the action of a redeemer look like? How does Boaz demonstrate his love for Ruth and wanting to redeem her? He provides for her. He gives her grain upon grain upon grain. He protects her from her enemies. He prepares a place at his table and says, come on, 
roasted grain. Eat all you want at my table. And then in chapter four, he purchases her. That is, he brings her into the people of God. Faith family, is there, is there, is there a more beautiful picture of our Redeemer than that? For it is Jesus Christ who is the one that has the right to redeem. He is God and man. It is Jesus Christ who has the resources to redeem. He lived a perfect life. It is Jesus that had the resolve to redeem as he endured the cross willingly for us. And as a result, he has provided for us grace upon grace upon grace. He has protected us from the evil one. He has provided a place for us in his kingdom. And he has purchased us forever by his blood. It is why, it is why Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him... That is Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We are his. There ain't no economy going to change that. There ain't no dysfunctional family going to change that. There is no death that will change that. For nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When we rest, and this is what I'm pleading for, when we rest in the reality of our redemption, when we rest in the love of our Redeemer, that is when the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light, in, in the glorious light of His glory and grace. When you lose your focus on Jesus, you lose your grip on hope. The problem is not that your circumstances are too big. The problem is you've taken your eyes off the big love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Christian, if you're struggling with hope today, it's because you haven't gone back to the cross enough. Because the cross reminds you what the defining reality of your life is. And brother, sister, that ain't your circumstances. It is the love of a Redeemer that defines your story. What a captivating story. I may preach from it again next week, even though I'm not supposed to. It is such a captivating story. But faith family, it is also a story that confronts us. Are you a person of hope? Can you trust when you do not see? Do you know with blessed assurance that God is doing extraordinary things in the ordinary of life? Will you keep pressing forward even when the future is uncertain? All because you have experienced the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. That's your story. 
That's Ruth's story. That's the gospel story. And oh, how we love to tell that story. It will be our theme in glory to tell that old, old story of Jesus and his love. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Are we a people of hope? God, that's the question for us today. Thank you, God, for communicating to us through story. You have given us this book, this story, for our good to study, to know, to learn in this moment of our life because hope is always relevant and redemption is always true. So I pray, Holy Spirit, for Your work to be done. I, I pray that You will take the seeds that have been scattered over these few weeks in this series of hope and you would bear fruit from them in its season. In a world that is giving up, in a world that is turning back, may the people of God march forward, eyes focused on our Redeemer. One day He will reign over all the earth. One day we will be seated at the table and hope will reign forever. That's my prayer, that we know that reality, that we know that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.